You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I am Mark. And I'm Niels. In episode 23, I will be speaking later to artist, art director, and queen of Draw Die November, Rebecca Dart. Find out how her professional background in animation and a love of plants come together to create some startlingly unique images of the prehistoric world. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art subject this month is not a publication, nor even two-dimensional work of any kind, indeed. We will be talking about the Invicta line of dinosaur toys, produced in conjunction with London's Natural History Museum, beginning in 1974. They're not toys. Okay, they're kind of toys. There was an ad that said they're not toys. Anyway. If you say so, Mark. But first, <laughs> Niels, uh, through whatever alignment of the Saurian stars, you seem to have ended up reporting on a few stories concerning eggs. Eggs. And what have you for us this time? Eggs. It's, uh, it's that, that character from uh, the second Land Before Time movie, Eggs. Eggs. I have not seen it. Neither have I, nor has anyone else. Nor has anyone else. Well, no. you, 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 you don't miss much, but here we are. <laughs> eggs. Um, eggs are in the news a bit. Um, eggs are uh, valuable these days, apparently. And our friends over at the Urtite Museum Boxstall, which I have hey. visited with Mark, hey, uh, they have over 180 dinosaur eggs in their collection. And they had the bright idea to scan them to see if there was anything in there, maybe. Maybe we can find some fossil dinosaur embryos wouldn't that be cool? Now, uh, it's taken five years uh, for there to be a scanner available for them. But uh, a team of scientists led by Oertijd Museum curator Maarten de Rijke have put some of their eggs into a medical CT scanner at a hospital in Den Bosch to see if there's anything inside. Chances were, of course, slim, but... Luck was on their side, as it turns out that one 70 million year old hadrosaur egg from North America, indeed, appears to have something inside of it. Now, it may or may not be an actual fossil dinosaur embryo, but, and I quote senior curator Jonathan Wallaert, what else could it be? So far, of course, the evidence is pretty tentative. If indeed a dinosaur embryo it be, then the Boxtel team will be one of the few to ever find and publish on an in ovo specimen of Mesozoic dinosaur. The next step, take that baby to Switzerland for a round in the Large Hadron Collider. Then we can do some <laughs> proper science. <laughs> yeah. What? Maybe we'll get to know... Yep. <laughs> right. Maybe we'll get to know more about uh, the development of dinosaurs in the egg. As always, watch this space. Fantastic. Oh, Netherlands. It feels like ages uh, since I was there. Well, it was actually just November. But it feels like ages. <laughs> well, as you say, Niels, watch this space. And uh, mm. I'm going to celebrate by eating this Cadbury's cream egg, which the local supermarket has obligingly supplied, even though we're still a long way from Easter yet. Uh, thank I'm you. joking. It starts stocking those in December. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, Christmas is gone. Now it's time to stock cream eggs. Yep. Well, no, no dinosaurs were harmed in the making of these Cadbury cream eggs. No, 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 as far as we're aware. They're chocolate and God knows anyway. what in the middle. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Niels. Eggs. Eggs. Uh, Mark, the only clue I have for your news uh, is the mysterious phrase, unsinate processes. Uh, do be so good as to enlighten us, if you please. Okay, here we go, oh boy. Here we have Deep Reptilian Evolutionary Roots of Major Avian Respiratory Adaptation by Wang et al. published in Nature Communications Biology. So it's open access. Woohoo! Yay! Yay, which may have influenced my decision somewhat. So this is about principally those little bony prongs that you see on the ribs of birds. Uh, which are known as unsinate processes. And in birds, they are, well, bony. <laughs> so they're ossified. They're made of bone, um, like the ribs themselves. But other animals have similar processes, notably crocodilians and even tuatara. Although in their case, they are cartilaginous. But yeah, that aside, in birds in particular, there have been some studies into the roles that these processes might play in ventilation. So uh, as the authors say, they appear to form an important component of the highly specialized avian ventilatory system. Um, and as I said, plenty of experiments back that up. And yeah, there, there, are, there is some evidence that they perform this function in crocodilians as well. 
So the question is, when did this adaptation emerge? Because it appears to be obviously in crocodilians and in birds. So therefore, was it in the common ancestor? Uh, it was already known that certain Manoraptoran dinosaurs or Peneraptoran or whatever your preferred clade <laughs> name, um, basically, they do have ossified um, unsinate processes, as does Pelicanimimus. While broad calcified unsinate processes termed intercostal plates have been observed in several ornithischian dinosaurs, including ankylosaurs, thescelosaurids, or thescelosaurids, or whatever you say, ornithopods, and stegosaurs. Um, although it's still, it's been patchy in the past. So they've been here and there. Still not that much evidence as to whether they evolved convergently in these different groups. Rather helpfully, though, where you have the cartilaginous uh, processes, which occurs obviously in crocodilians, but also in juvenile birds, obviously they start out as cartilage and then later ossify as they mature um where you have those they can be removed and then you can see these scars where these processes attach so naturally oh, right. there's a logical step from there to go and look at fossil archosaurs and see if you could see or the authors would see if they could see similar scars and they did um so they've looked at a number of dinosaurs all sorts, really. Theropods, Thoriophorans, sauropods, um, specifically Apatosaurus, I think maybe a couple of others, various animals, along with some um, crocodilians and even an Etosaur. Uh, I think a Phytosaur is in there as well. And yeah, unsurprisingly, perhaps, they find that these scars are in fact present. They, they look different, um, as you might expect in theropods. They look quite bird-like, although they do in some crocodilians as well, funnily enough. Um but yeah, they they all have evidence of um, cartilaginous uncinate processes. So it appears that these are plesiomorphic in archosaurs because both crocline archosaurs and um, non non avian or non sort of um, non manoraptoran dinosaurs have evidence of these cartilaginous processes. And that includes things like tyrannosaurs, and that's where we must refer to some of these reports that came out saying this is evidence that T. Rex breathed like a bird. Um, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, there may be other evidence that T. Rex did breathe like a bird or had a sort of um, avian-like respiratory system. Well, with the air sacs and such like. But yeah, so the air sacs. Obviously, there's some evidence, some other lines of evidence that non-avian theropods had bird-like respiratory systems, but this is not in itself evidence of that because, as I said, these cartilaginous processes are present in crocodiles and indeed tuatara as well. So not evidence of that. However, it is evidence that these processes possibly um evolved in the common ancestor of all archosaurs essentially uh so yeah not evidence that t-rex breathed like a bird <laughs> i know that every di dinosaur news article has to relate to t-rex in some way and uh, if you can tie in modern day birds that's a bonus but it does provide an insight into um where what were once considered special features of birds and you know their magical respiratory system actually came from and that they might have been present as far back as the common archosaur ancestor Wow. Yeah, that's probably enough about little bony prongs on ribs. Gosh, I think. I mean, it, it's no less fascinating, though. Okay, so so if if I understand this correctly, I think the takeaway point is that T. Rex breathes like a bird, <laughs> <laughs> but not just because it had unsinate processes. Um, <laughs> it may have breathed in a somewhat bird-like fashion, but there are some other lines of evidence I gather, but not just because of that one factor. Mm. Um, because otherwise, you could say that a crocodile breathes like a bird, which is obviously nonsense. Uh, but yeah, you know. but it's still incredible news, I think. Yeah, but pretty it's cool. It's just a nice little, um, slightly obscure, perhaps, paper covering a minor, what would appear to be a minor detail of anatomy, but it gives quite a good insight into archosaur evolution and bird evolution and the evolution exactly. of their initially quite extraordinary uh, ventilatory system. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Mark. And finally, from me, a brand new little pterosaur with extraordinary dentition. The paper, a new pterodactyloid pterosaur with a unique filter feeding apparatus from the late Jurassic of Germany by Martil et al. describes Balinognathus moiseri, a long-legged, spatula-beaked, filter-feeding pterodactyloid pterosaur from Upper Jurassic Plattenkalk limestones at Wattendorf, Bavaria, Southern Germany. I'm going to use the word exquisite here again to describe the fossil. An exquisite, near-complete articulated skeleton with a small part of the wing membrane preserved. But 
the most remarkable thing. Exquisite. Indeed. The most remarkable thing about this animal is its slightly curved spatula-shaped jaws containing some 480 needle-shaped teeth preserved in extraordinary detail with a slightly hooked expansion towards their tips, which makes me think of the tiniest crochet needles. Uh, These teeth line the sides but are absent from the very front of its spoonbill-like beak. And it is these, of course, which gave rise to its name, meaning bowhead whale jaw, and which are second in numerousness only to Pterodaustro, a fellow filter feeder in the family of Catenocasmatids, because it naturally follows that so weird and wonderful a creature must necessarily have correspondingly complex nomenclature. But I digress. Uh, Further, (laughs) there is a curious keel-like crest which extends downward from its palate, and which together with the teeth and the shape of the beak, means that the creature couldn't even have fully closed its jaws. But the excellent mesh trap formed by these adaptations, plus its long limbs, which would have been useful for wading in shallow water, are pretty comprehensive indicators of its filter-feeding lifestyle. Now, our friend and inexhaustible paleoartist Joshua Knupper has created a series of excellent artworks and an extremely useful break the man machine indeed has created a series of excellent artworks and an extremely useful breakdown of Balinoglithus in a handy Twitter thread to which we will refer you in the show notes as well as of course the paper itself which is published by Springer and is open access hooray hooray And now, uh, let us on to this month's Vintage Dinosaur Art. Vintage Dinosaur Art! The Invicta Dinosaur Toys, for which production began in 1974, in conjunction with what was then still called the British Museum of Natural History, and now the Natural History Museum London, of course. The line ran for some two decades thereafter, so that all of the present podcasting company could still have had first-hand contact with the later run of the figures, and at least two of us did, uh, before they ceased and eventually attained highly prized collectible status. Mark, I feel that you are duty-bound to begin on this. Yes, one thing first. It, yeah, it's the it was the British Museum, brackets, natural history. It was basically the natural history department of the British Museum, strictly speaking, at the time, although... It was widely known as a natural history museum that eventually became its official name. But that's why you have British museums stamped on the bottom of all of them. It was some weird anomaly that for some time, for years and years after it was de facto a separate organisation, it it was still regarded as the British Museum Natural History Department. It was just whatever. (laughs) Whatever. These, yeah, whatever. These are some of the seminal collectible dinosaur figures. Um, I can't help but notice how you avoid using the word toys there. Okay, they are kind of toys, kind of. I mean, yeah, you could play with them, although they're not very good for sort of playtime. I mean, they don't move, they don't do anything, they're just solid lumps of plastic. Um, And some of them have bases or they're in sort of very specific poses. I'm thinking of some of the later ones, like the Baryonyx in particular, which is leaning on a fish um, that it's just caught. And none of them, like the Theropods don't have like wide open mouths probably due to manufacturing limitations but that's why the buy the fact is that they don't um so they're not very good for playtime especially i mean but in the 90s obviously when i was getting dinosaur toys for the first time um i had some carnegie's um and i had some jurassic park things and some sort of cheaper ones you could pose them and they well they had open mouths and you could uh, have them attack each other and play with them or whatever but the invicta ones were never very um they're not very good for playing with. What they are good for is being absolutely stunningly detailed, statuesque, monochrome figures. Worth pointing out, of course, there were some painted ones that were rather hurriedly brought in as a response to the Carnegie line, basically. <laughs> so Safari came out with the Carnegie yes, line. That's all right. painted figures and seemed to be in a bit of a panic. And then they suddenly started releasing these painted ones, which were even more expensive <laughs> than the regular ones, which are already quite expensive. And the paint wore off quite easily these days the painted ones are rarer and you know if you can find basically mint condition painted invictors like gold dust now they're just uh, <laughs> i managed to find one recently that's in pretty good condition but still rather beaten up um scuffs and you know bits missing but paint missing um but yeah but 
I think everyone mostly remembers the unpainted ones. I mean, they were the ones that were around for decades and they yes. definitely suit the statuesque nature of the figures. And yeah, the fact is they were just miles and miles better than anything that had come before them. They were in a completely different league. You had small little plastic monochrome figures before that. They were sort of old Marx figures and those Moldorama things, but um, nothing on the same sort of scale and um, with the same level of sculptural detail as the Invictors, which in terms of who sculpted them, uh, the early ones appear to have been sculpted by Arthur Hayward, who was chief model maker and taxidermist at the Natural History Museum. Taxidermist? Yeah, he was taxidermist too. He actually stuffed Guy the Gorilla, uh, the famous gorilla from London Zoo. Yeah, Hayward appears to have sculpted pretty much all of the early ones. I have read that he didn't sculpt the mammals, so the mammoth and the glyptodon, the early mammals, and well, and the whale, I guess. The whale's an odd one, by the way, but that's, yeah, we'll come back to that. <laughs> but he did sculpt the dinosaurs, and there are quite a few Hayward hallmarks that give that away, not least the fact that the Tyrannosaurus does look... You know, people often say it reminds them of Guanji from the Valley of Guanji and some Harryhausen yes, dinosaurs. very much is, does. Yeah, the reason is the same guy. <laughs> so... Well, there you same go. Guy, yeah, same guy sculpted the Invicta Tyrannosaurus as sculpted, uh, was involved with Guanji. Although he was, he was uncredited on Guanji, where he was uncredited on the Invicta models. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's often uncredited. It's very sad. He deserves more recognition. Well, well unsung work. hero. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, I think that just seems to be the nature of, of the business because, um, I mean, today we are familiar with artists who produce their own toys and, their, uh, and are, are known, of course, just outside of commercially produced work. So that they, they are already well known themselves. And then if they go on to, to make toys of their own, we, uh, we become familiar with them. But um, in general, um, even today, we, you know, we tend not to know who the sculptors of, of animal figures are. Um, it's, it's a pretty rare thing for us to um, to know of them at all. So it, um, it's not that extraordinary. But yes, I fully agree that uh, that aside, it would be great to know, um, to have these sculptures credited, uh, even with a, a small signature or something. It seems pretty fair, don't you think? Yes, at least if the manufacturers could credit them on social media, for example, and say this well, exact, is exactly. so Exactly, yes, yeah. Um, that would be excellent. I mean, I want to know who sculpted all these things. Uh, it's really interesting. Well, yes, exactly. I, the artist, I mean, yeah. Um, but yes, regarding the Invictors, they there was quite a shift in the style over time. Um, possibly aside from the sauropods, I'd say the main shift in the sauropods was from a tail-dragging old-fashioned posture to a tail-up-in-the-air posture. I mean, there is quite a stark contrast between the Diplodocus, which is one of the earliest ones, which appears to have been sculpted by Hayward, um, which is very old-fashioned, very long, very old-fashioned, very dragged. round. Um, but nevertheless, a lovely fluidic um, sculpt looks extremely organic. Uh, flowing lines—you can see all the musculature, the ridges of musculature are different places. It's a stunningly detailed piece. But yeah, tail dragging—it looks quite pon ponderous. And then you could contrast that with the Memenkisaurus that came out in the 1980s, and that is like something out of Bob Backer's work. <laughs> I mean, it's the tail is way up in the air, of course. The tail is actually curving yeah. upwards at the end. And also the neck is vertical. I think this one holds up quite well. It, yeah, the feet obviously are incorrect. Um, I think there are other details that we change nowadays. But yeah, it's, again, it's just a lovely fluid sculpt with all the creases in the skin, all the musculature nicely, well thought out. Um, the Cetiosaurus as well isn't such a crazy figure. It's just a sort of sauropod walking with its neck held out. But it also has its tail up in the air. You can, so see, you can that, see that, that progression. tail straight out behind it. Yeah, you can see yeah. that it's newer. Yeah, um, I just just to supplement what you're saying there, Mark, that you can see the progression as these toys are released, um, uh, obviously with, with updated information uh, about their appearance. But there is a curious thing in that the Apatosaurus or Brontosaurus, whichever you prefer, um, which came uh, in 1987, and that was after Cetiosaurus, um, which had its tail back on the ground again. Um, so one can only guess at the reasoning there. That's very peculiar. I mean, I do remember from the early 90s that there's still a lot of, there's still many artworks, including by the likes of Civic, that were in circulation. Um, I mean, really, I think these Civic ones I'm talking about were from the 80s. So actually, make, that might make them more relevant. So if you think about things like the Normanpedia 
and when dinosaurs ruled the earth, um, which was I think 85, that had a, a patasaurus or brontosaurus in it with the tail also dragging on the ground that, that even had a retro style head, right? believe it or not. Yeah, but that was Tibby. Even in some other looks at the time, it still seemed to be sort of still acceptable to make a patasaurus and occasionally Diplodocus tail draggers, yeah. um, even though we'd yes. moved on from that. I think yeah, that's just I part see. of that. It, although, exactly. yeah, I agree. It is weirdly retro and it does suffer from being a kind of fat Diplodocus. What's even stranger is you compare that to the Brachiosaurus, or I guess it's Giraffe or Titan. Obviously, it's labelled Brachiosaurus. That is an absolutely magnificent sculpt. Um, that looks great. I've seen that one uh, at your place as well. It's, it's a proper big toy as well. It is big. It's not quite as big as the famous Carnegie one from sort of the 80s, or the late 80s. Um, you know, the happy, smiley one. <laughs> it's, but it's still pretty big. Um, it's heavy. And yeah, that, again, it's just an, it's something regal about it, which no other Brachiosaur sculpts ever seems to quite manage to capture there's, there's something a lot more dignified about the Invicta one i guess because it has its mouth shut which really helps <laughs> but, um, yes. but you can again you can see the massive musculature around the shoulders on it the big plant eating gut and yeah it's just absolutely magnificent sculpt um and the tail is just about off the ground on that one which is curious it's not quite a dragger it's um the tail does hang down quite low but it's still quite straight and manages to clear the ground. So yeah, again, interesting that the Apatosaurus seems like such a backward step when compared with that. What I wanted to talk about was what is the legacy of these figures? How do we see the influence that these 3D figures had on maybe paleo art that came later? Hmm. Oh, goodness. I, I mean, certainly it encouraged other... I mean, I, I don't know if the Carnegie line would have existed in the way that it did without these. Because the Carnegie line almost seems to be mm, a bit of a... Yes, I, I would agree there. It's it's a bit of a... It's sort of copying the idea in a way, because this was the first line to have everything in a consistent scale as well, almost. Almost. <laughs> so you had... The, the majority of it was in this 1 in 45 um, scale-ish. So with the exception of the Blue Whale, of course, which is a slightly baffling inclusion, although... The NHM is famous for the big blue whale model, so perhaps that's why it's there. And obviously, they couldn't make it the same scale because it'd be ridiculously huge. <laughs> so they reduced it down. Yes. Um, and of course, there was the Troodon, which is a bit of an anomaly, or Synonychosaurus. Yes. Um, yeah, that one it has two Strange, credits. Awkward, on the angly thing. Yeah, it credits Archosaur Designs, I think it is, um, on the bottom as well. And I, I but isn't that the reason why why that figure was withdrawn? Because there were copyright issues. Was that not the case? Yeah, there were. That's what I've always heard. There were copyright issues. Yeah. With it. it was. It was always an anomaly that one because, as I said, it was out of scale with the rest of the line. Mm. It had a base that it sort of plugged into with little pegs. Yeah, it it also makes this one a particularly rare item, um, and and a highly prized one. I mean, in as much as all of them are highly prized, but this one particularly, I think. Yes, that's one of the rarer ones. As is well, as are the two that came out last in nineteen ninety three which would be the Lambiosaurus and the Demetrodon. Um, oh, the, Demetrodon, the, by the way, is Lambiosaurus. Sorry, go on. Before I start that, gushing with the Lambiosaurus, go on. Oh, no, you should gush about it. It's absolutely useful <laughs> no, no, no. sculpts. Yeah, it's um, gush away. <laughs> no, but, but do talk about the Demetrodon first, because being in uh, approximate scale with all the rest of it is actually quite tiny uh, and easily it missed. It is tiny. Obviously, Carnegie tries to do it as well, but theirs was, was a lot much more crude effort back in the early 90s. Compared with the Invicta one, which is tiny, but stunningly detailed. And beautiful. really, actually, rather yeah. pretty good diameter. Really? Yeah. No, it's beautiful. And forward thinking. Mm. Forward thinking in many respects. It's walking in a surprisingly upright posture, and its tail seems to be clear of the ground as well. It does seem to have naked mole rat skin. Yeah, it's wrinkly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the integument of Dimitri one is still a bit contested so you exactly. know, could have had naked yeah. mole rat skin you never know maybe it lived underground in colonies <laughs> you oh, yes. social colonies that sale yeah of course it did i mean yeah yeah it makes perfect sense <laughs> no it doesn't at all it makes no sense no but i mean it's okay it's sort of vaguely wrinkly it's not necessarily scaly which might not necessarily be wrong but um no no yeah but, but then again the lambiosaurus is very wrinkly too having said that it's beautiful and you can see uh the the, the difference the uh, the progression once again in these two much later uh, arrivals um the lambiosaurus um has very little in common with uh 
Iguanodon, say, which is perhaps the, the other closest relative among this set. Um, yeah, that one is yeah, obviously Neve Parker. Oh, yes, of course, the Mosquerosaurus. Well, yeah, you're right. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, but the Lambiosaurus, um, almost, but for its uh, noodle neck, would almost still stand up today, I think, um, in, in very many ways. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it is beautiful, and, and it happens to be one of the rarer ones as well, at least in my experience of hunting them down. Do I see some Ellie Kish in there, in the Lambiosaurus? It does look very Kishian, doesn't it, now that you mention it? Yeah, possibly. Um, I wanted to point out, I was looking at that yesterday, and it's a great example of where there are some tiny details that you might miss at first glance. And If you pick it up and actually rotate it around and have a good look at it, um, I noticed in particular the pads on the feet. I mean, one of the f- feet is sort of sanded off so it will stand up more easily. You know, the one that's flat to the floor. But um, the other one, which is being raised, there are some very nice, subtly detailed pads on the toes, which is absolutely beautifully done. And really, mm-hmm. you could not... If you think about what else was around at that time, things like the early Carnegie toys just had, didn't have any detail remotely comparable to that. It, you know, you would have to go up to really obscure professionally made models to get that a similar level of detail so what you're saying is they're not toys they're not toys they're museum quality replicas <laughs> <laughs> by the way what i want to talk about because because i mentioned the t-rex being very grungy like um i was never a big fan of the t-rex maybe because i'm too much of a again millennial race on dinosaur renaissance stuff and it's an old tail dragger with like crocodile skin and but there is an interesting contrast between it, well, and the Megalosaurus as well, which is another one of the really early ones. And is also yeah, this very tail dragger, yeah, dragon tail, um, crocodilian sort of scoots on it. That, and if you look at the Baryonyx, for example, um, which has a rather By smooth... By definition, a newer one. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> it has a rather smooth, sleek look to it, which is reflected in things like the Matabarosaurus as well, uh, versus the Iguanodon. The Iguanodon having this willowy... Burian or Neve Parker kind of look as well as being the tripod <laughs> and the Matabarosaurus being on all fours um, and again it's a lot more streamlined, sleeker, reflecting that dinosaur renaissance sort of aesthetic the Baryonyx by the way was the like the best widely available scale model like that of a Spinosaur for quite some years after for a released. long time, yes you're right a long time, yeah if you think about it um, and again some lovely tiny details on that, like the way that the um, the claw is puncturing the fish and you get the sense of the fish's skin sagging as the uh, the claw goes in. Just little things. Um, absolutely beautifully done. Yeah, I could just, just gush about them all day. Um, <laughs> some of them didn't well, age so well. Yes, the Stegosaurus is a bit of a derpy thing that looks like it could have come out of the 19th century. Um, yeah, that's, that's uh, the most retro one in the entire collection, I would say. Poss- yeah, quite possibly. Um, quite possibly Scalidosaurus is pretty retro too especially by the modern standards but um, yeah the Stegosaurus is not did not age well at all <laughs> right quite quickly the, the Triceratops is kind of weird it's the Triceratops mostly... is weird but it isn't a pose that was reproduced quite a lot and I yeah. think it is just because it's it's from the NHM right because of the one the in NHM there. has yeah, a mounted exactly. Triceratops yeah in, in because... pretty much the same pose yeah, and the Triceratops mount in the NHM is a model which a lot of people don't realise. I mean, I didn't realise until I read it on a blog, um, Extinct Monsters blog, I think. But yeah, it's it's entirely a model, so none of it is cast. Um, I mean, yeah, it's quite a good model, especially for the time it was made, but that's why it's so odd looking by modern standards and why it has hadrosaur feet and yeah, other oddities. So yes. And then there's the scoots on the back, which the Triceratops yeah, has. Yeah, that's... The most, yeah, that's the most extraordinary thing about it. Which were it. copied again for the land before time. <laughs> yes, it was. Really? Oh God, it was. Uh, it? Yeah, well, y- yes, you do. You do see that that's uh, that um, sort of line across, yeah, uh, down its sides, down its length. Pretty much the same animal <laughs> in the film. So it's not. It's not an unreasonable inference for the time, if you think about it. They, no, they obviously, no, clearly but, didn't um, have ossified scoops, but. Flat rectangular scales on its back. Yeah, why not? It's not fa- and yeah, again the level of detail on it, beautiful. To go back, uh, Niels, to to the point you were making about the legacy of, of these figures. Um, b- before we're run away with um, from a collector's perspective, I want to come back to the the artistic merit um, of these uh, these toys, these figures, whatever you want to call them, um, because there is there is a beautiful homogeneity 
throughout the entire collection. And obviously, obviously it helps that they were most of them yes. sculpted by the same sculptor. Um, but even the mammals, uh, even the, the mammoth and the, uh, mm. the glyptodon, yeah. Well, but even those um, seem to fit in well with the rest uh, of the collection. And, um, and I, I just, I want to emphasize this, um, what you were saying earlier, Mark, about the, the clean lines and the very classic look throughout this entire set, um, which uh, it's not, I think, it, it, uh, from an aesthetic uh, viewpoint, isn't just um, the fact that these are retro and they date back for a little while, but there is this cleanliness of lines and, uh, and just an elegance um, throughout the entire collection, which I think even now is, is hard to find. Um, Yes, I mean, obviously, today we're looking at something else entirely because we're just we're mostly um, looking at the accuracy and the lifelikeness and so on and so forth. But um, but this this wonderful aesthetic sense um, just runs throughout the entire line. And um, yeah, I don't know any other comparable um, vintage ish uh, collection um, <laughs> like like this. I mean, again. Uh, the, the fact is that, that this was um, pretty rare at the time anyway. Um, there weren't many uh, manufacturers doing the same thing at the time. Um, but, but really, this, this whole thing, not just because of its, um, uh, its rarity, but the whole appearance of the set just sets it so much apart somehow. And yeah, and there is, again, I'm going to use the word charm because I think it's, it's perfectly justified. Um, there is a charm and a, a classic feel to all of them, and um, it was such it was such a masterstroke of the the Natural History Museum to have sanctioned this collection, and you know you don't see it's like until until uh, Carnegie wanted to to you know to, to pick pick up those coattails and, and do its own set, and um, and today there isn't anything else like it. There is no no officially sanctioned collection from a particular no. museum um the no. what what i think is is a really great pity and an almost a fall from grace if you will I mean, sure enough the uh, nhm doesn't sell anything half this quality these days but, <laughs> but the thing is with the natural history museum having having given rise to this set uh, within victor um they, they went on later to um to commission Toyway uh, in in the two thousands, was it two thousand and four or something of the kind? Um, yeah, they commissioned right. Toyway, yeah, to produce uh, another um, set of figures um, with with that with the, the museum stamp on it. But but let us say, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, they are <laughs> they are bad. I think they, they are very good. They are a, a, a far cry from this lot. They are a disappointment when you consider what, um, what, what has taken place before. And uh, yeah, and I wish that, um, that the Natural History Museum would again, I don't know, I don't know, commission someone knowledgeable and, and yeah, something, <laughs> something in this, in this um, spirit again, with the knowledge that we now have, with accurate beautiful dinosaurs um and with someone yeah, commissioned who, rebecca yeah. groom already <laughs> <laughs> yes among others but by, yeah, why not and yeah. there are sculptors out there who are good enough so you know we even know some we are you know we are overflowing with talented artists who are more than capable so yeah i mean there it is come on in hm Our guest this month is artist, art director, and character designer Rebecca Dart, a doyen in the animation field with such shows as My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, Mission Hill, SpongeBob SquarePants, and a whole string of others to her name. But it is, of course, in her capacity as a paleo artist for which she is celebrated in the paleosphere, particularly for her masterpieces under the Draw Die November prompt on social media. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Chasmosaurs. Hello, everybody. I am so happy to be here, and I am so excited to be talking to one of my favorite artists today. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca. All right, let's begin. Um, 
You are, Rebecca, what I would describe as someone who isn't uh, born and bred in paleo, by which I mean that paleo art or paleontology itself is, is not your dedicated central path, as it were, whether professionally or recreationally. You are an artist who simply happens to do paleo art in addition to everything else. Um, so can you tell us then how, how this came about? How was your interest in paleontology fostered and how does it relate to your other pursuits, if at all? Uh, yeah, um, I actually came to doing uh, paleo art in an earnest fashion uh, fairly recently, uh, probably about uh, 2017. Right. I had always loved dinosaurs throughout my entire life. And uh, I had a lot of dinosaur books growing up. Uh, but and interestingly, I never really drew them very much. They, uh, I, I always found them a bit intimidating. I always, I always felt that there is always such a sort of a, an emphasis on photorealism. Uh -huh. And I just don't think I would have the patience or the ability to, to reproduce that. Um, so it wasn't uh, until much later. I, I had sort of gone uh, in more of a fantasy art direction. All right, yes. And I, yeah, I had created these characters called uh, the Battle Kittens, which were giant barbarian women that rode uh, giant kittens into battle. <laughs> um, and that was sort of, I sort of drew these characters in all kinds of scenarios and was sort of uh, working on them for about 10 years. And oh, then I, I don't know, something, I think I grew a little bit tired of, of I wouldn't say tired. I would just say, I just kind of felt like I needed to kind of branch out and sure. do other things. Um, yeah, my, my barbarian women were sort of a catharsis for me in many ways. They were yes. uh, violent and and angry and i kind of felt um that i was sort of working through a lot of issues through them right. and those issues sort of resolved and so i felt to move on and i you know had been a being a bit of a science nerd and always loving paleontology i had sort of been kind of like looking around and then i was at a comics fair here in vancouver where I met uh, Levi Hastings. Oh yes, of course. Who does uh, yeah? He does a beautiful, very graphic, simple dinosaur. Yes, indeed. Uh, in a watercolor, and I was like really blown away. And I was like, "Well, this is like paleo art that's very different that I've never seen anything like this before." So I looked up other paleo artists and saw that there was a lot more variety of paleo art than I had anticipated. Yes. That I had never really been exposed to. Mm -hmm. uh, I always preferred paleo art that puts a little bit more mustard on the art. Oh, yes. So, uh, yeah. So, and then I discovered your work and I discovered a whole bunch of other artists' work and uh, I was uh, inspired to create my own. Wow. Goodness me. I never quite imagined that I would uh, actually be mentioned <laughs> alongside any of the others by someone whom I admire <laughs> so much. Um, gosh, uh, thank you so much. But um, but yes, Levi Hastings, of course, was uh, our interviewee uh, some episodes back as well. Um, so it's a small world. Yes, I listened to that one too. Yeah, he's great. Wonderful. I love his work. And um, well, uh, to follow on from that then, um, <laughs> other than the the... the, the artists whom you had already mentioned, um, who would you say were your influences, uh, both in general uh, as well as in paleo art? Oh, uh, oh, geez, there's so many. Um, yes. I think when I think when I was growing up, um, I had a subscription to Zoo Books as well as National Geographic, and. Uh, when it comes to paleo art, I can probably pinpoint it down to a single image by John Gurchie. Oh, yes. And it's a very famous one where it shows in the foreground, there's a, a group, small group of, I believe it's allosaurs in, in silhouette. And then there are some brachiosaurs. Yes. Yeah, sort I, of I, in I... the mid-ground and background. And there's a baby. That's right. You know, I'm I'm sure everyone's sort of seen this image a million times. I, I think we and, can all recognize that. Yeah, and I and I think that image really stuck with me as a kid because you didn't see the entire sauropod. 
you only see their feet and body. Yes. And it was the first time I really felt I understood the scale of the creatures because it was like real life when you when you're next to something so large you can't take it all in at once. And seeing that he was brave enough to just not show the entire dinosaur mm. uh, really stuck with me. And it's something that I've, and what you don't see is just as important as what you do see. That's right. So I sort of c- carried that through and that's a big inspiration. In a lot of my compositions. Yes, I can see that. I'm greatly inspired by, uh, as far as like non paleo art, I really love, uh, 1970s illustrators uh-huh. such as Bob Peake and Bernie Fuchs and Dave Grove. Uh, I really love their inst- illustration style. So I always and their sense of light. I believe I leave I believe Bernie Fuchs said that he tried to capture the light coming through his glass of beer. That wow. was his inspiration for his style. So really like trying to capture that light i i'm a bit of a light nerd i guess oh yes i'd say like i really love learning how light works and interacts with color and how we perceive yes, it yes i think that's very clear in your work as well yeah it's i'm always trying to to push myself into trying to figure out how uh, different lighting would work in different situations your work uh, i think rebecca uh, certainly your paleo art um can be described as snapshots in in more ways than one. Um, Your images feel so cinematic that your background in animation is almost instantly obvious in them. And in his interview with you for the blog back in 2020, uh, our blog master, David Orr, described your, particularly your square images and their rounded corners as akin to being seen through a viewmaster. Now, I would also add that they feel to me almost like Polaroids. So that the immersive sense is furthered by feeling as though the pictures had been taken in that instant, in that prehistoric world. And what's most magical of all, you do all of this without being interested in or even pretending to aim for photorealism, as you said yourself earlier. Um, uh, And this is something I hugely applaud, by the way. Um, I suppose my question is, how do you do this? How do you work this magic? Oh, geez, that's a, that's a oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, the the frame kind of came about uh, in for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, like you said, I, I was inspired by Viewmaster reels, and also on top of that, like old um, Polaroids. Right. Um, it was also a, a motivational tactic for me because when I was doing the Dinovembers. I was sort of, it's almost kind of intimidating if you don't have boundaries. Right. So the frame made a boundary for me that made it a lot easier for me to be like, okay, here's a frame. Now you just have to fill it. And I've kind of felt like if I didn't have that boundary, I would just probably make these giant detailed canvases and I would never get anything done. So that was very helpful as well. And um, it's interesting you pick up on the Polaroids because I also always add a film grain to every, on top of everything. Yes. To kind of give it that media, that uh, sort of media feel, the ancient media feel. And, um, and I would say that my work isn't realism, but more naturalism. Mm. It's more like naturalistic. Yes. Where, I kind of use true colors and real lighting scenarios, but the rendering is much looser than um, than realism. Yes, I would say like the brush strokes are a little bit more visible. Yeah, I mean this this is a really good distinction and one which I make often actually um, because yeah, naturalism rather than realism uh, with a capital R. Yes. as I said before, therein lies the magic because they they are no less immersive. Um, for all that and they really do make you feel as though you are there um i mean this is one of the hallmarks of your work oh thank you yeah i I feel in many ways um a work is more immersive if you let the viewer fill in the gaps Mm. a little bit yes um the viewer has their own imagination and the human brain is amazing at connecting dots and i i think 
giving someone's brain a little bit of work when looking at an image uh, actually makes the viewer more um, involved yes. in that image. Yes, that's a very pertinent answer, I think. Are there other approaches that you have to think about uh, in composing your images then, other than uh, what you've already described in, in sort of more, let's call them mechanical terms, just in the more straightforward ways of constructing a picture? Uh, yeah, so uh, when I'm drawing uh, or creating my Dino Vember images, uh, I'm doing it on top of a full-time job. So I have yes. very limited time. So I have maybe maybe five hours, seven hours at the most to, to finish an image. So sometimes this forces me to create compositions that where I can, I, it's no, it's, I know it's something that I can complete within that time. So my compositions tend to be very simple. Uh, usually just one animal, it might only be part of that animal. I find having that limitation actually forces me to be more creative right. in, in many ways. Yes. So yes. is that answer your question? No, 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 I, no, I, it does. <laughs> and I, I do understand that completely. But what mystifies me still is how on earth you actually do manage it ultimately within the five or seven hours. It's still extraordinary to me. Um, I suppose that's just... Uh, it's a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> I pretty much wake up... <laughs> I pretty much wake up in the morning. Uh, you know, I get up at like five or six in the morning. I have my cup of coffee. I would spend that time to maybe look for reference and do research and maybe find uh, and maybe maybe do like a quick, it's like a super sloppy, uh, quick compositional sketch. And then I use my lunch break to uh, refine that composition. And then uh, when I finished work, I would start uh, the rendering process, which would be, um, and, and, and I really have to give a shout out to my wonderful husband who uh, does all the cooking and cleaning during the month of November uh, for me. Yes, and we'll just slide a plate of food under my face when it's uh when it's done yes. and so i can continue painting oh yeah dinosaurs so he's he's a huge help yes of course i mean i think as, as all artists can attest a good support network is vital yes i totally 100 percent agree Rebecca, other than that sense of drama and immersion, the other most obvious aspect of your paleo art is your love of plant life. Um, for those of us who follow you on social media, this much is also clear in your enthusiasm for and knowledge of extant plants. Um, I believe you're, you're very much invested in the role of, of plants in paleo art and, and the and the we might call it plant blindness, as it were, um, in, in paleo art in general. It uh, seems to be an area that's less attended, even within the paleosphere. Can you tell us more about your thoughts on this? Uh, yes, of course. Yeah, I think, uh, like you mentioned, uh, plant blindness is a is a term that's sort of uh, used quite a bit among uh, not just botanists, but paleobotanists as well. Mm that humans just tend to look at plants as being background and just sort of being filler. Yes. And, uh, and the more you learn about plants, the more exciting they become and the more dynamic these, these living beings are and, and the, the more fascinating. Uh, just utterly fascinating they, they can be. And I can understand why people might be a little intimidated by plants yes. because it is, can sometimes be very difficult to bring the paleo animal world and the paleo plant world together and pick the right time and the right place for them to coexist. Yes. It's, it does take quite a lot of research and deciphering and it's it can be really hard. Also botany terminology can be very intimidating as well. Yes. So you have to learn what a dehiscent follicle is, <laughs> yes. what phyllaries are. So there's a lot of uh, words and glossary words that you have to learn. 
when uh, dealing with plants. But I, I would think with my art, I would say my animation world kind of seeps in with that my goal is storytelling. Yes. So I'd like to tell like a little story in each illustration. Um, sometimes it's a very simple story. Sometimes it's more complex. So using animals and plants interaction to sort of educate people more about uh, plant life. And um, a few months ago, I was reading uh, the book Other, Land, Other Lands by Thomas Halliday. Oh, yes. Uh, it's a really great paleo book. And I don't know if you've read it, but uh, I, it's about ecosystems, about paleo ecosystems. I know of it, but I haven't read it. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. And um, I actually wrote down uh, a sentence uh, in that that kind of blew my mind. Right. Uh, Thomas Halliday writes, the notion, the notion of a single individual is a very animal concept, utterly ignored by other kingdoms of life. And it made me kind of really sit back and look at plants in a very different way which is the sense of self with them yes is so blurred uh they have such intimate relationships with fungus and bacteria and insects that um and they also can you know reproduce by cloning as well as you know by seed or spore and so it's yeah, so it made me kind of really think that we tend to judge plants very much through an animal lens. Yes. And I think we have to kind of step back and look at them in in their in their own right as as they are and being so different and uh and also they work in a very different timeline than we do, mm. which is I think why Absolutely. plant blindness exists yes yeah so they yeah like yeah so yeah so i think that's kind of like what i would like to emphasize to to people is to um just have a curiosity about plants and to to really look at them for for what they are and and just how fascinating and different they are from from us yes Yes, as you say, that is that yeah. is a great sentence um, from Thomas Halliday there, and yeah, and it's and it's so simple. Yeah. It's one that you sometimes don't really stop to think about, and um, yeah, and it and it makes perfect sense. Um, that sense of self, and, and as you say, yeah. you you most definitely inspire curiosity in in your. Um, your plant life in in your images because it's not just that you relish uh, painting floral environments like you said you very often have specific plant taxa which you quite literally foreground in your images and push the animals right back and and still again you know, <laughs> yeah yeah but without without um without either losing to the other it's uh, i keep coming back to th th this magic that you do um in in uh, making an immersive uh, atmospheric view of this thing in front of us it's, it's beautiful i mean for my part i'm very much interested in plants uh, without being at all knowledgeable about them and and as you said earlier especially in paleobotany it's so hard when um you might be interested but you don't even know where to begin or how to begin looking it, it is a difficult area to research as, as you yourself said um, and all the and all the terms. Yeah, it can. Yeah. It can be. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it can be uh, incredibly difficult. And I I would just say, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I've definitely made my uh, my fair share of mistakes. Yes. And somebody will uh, will let you know <laughs> without uh, question if you do make them. So, <laughs> but uh, but that's just part of the learning process. And you know, uh, and and if somebody you know comes forward and says, "Hey, this isn't quite correct," you know, I'm I'm very grateful to be uh, sometimes to be uh, to to have the more correct information, yeah. and that can kind of help me in future projects. So, uh, but yeah, I would just I would just say, just don't be afraid to to make those mistakes and just. Uh, and just uh, try and, your um, best. And as you said, um, I mean, ultimately the answer is is a simple one, but one which we neglect to think of. Again, like the Thomas Halliday quote, um, what you said, it just starts with with curiosity, doesn't it? I mean, ultimately that's that's how we go about even constructing the animals, the dinosaurs, um, and all the others. 
um, we want to know uh, what they look like, what they do, and and that's where yeah. that's our starting point. With, without question, the same applies to to the plant life, but yeah, but we neglect to think about that. Yeah, um, yeah. I often think of a quote actually by the artist Robert Bateman. Um, I read it years ago, so I'm probably paraphrasing it heavily. Uh, but I remember him saying something along the lines that an animal is nothing without its environment. Mm. Um, like everything about an animal, its behavior, the way it looks, the size of it is, is yes. influenced by its environment. Yes, that's so, right. And plants are such a big part of environments that um, depicting animals within their environment to me is, is my goal and like what I, what I really like yes. to, to depict and also what I like in other people's art too. Yes, of course. Well, Rebecca, um, coming back to your work in animation, um, mm -hmm. do you think we might have an animated dinosaur short or a series from you in future? Oh, funny. You should mention that. Um, uh -huh. I, I have been in in talks with someone uh, there's nothing concrete yet right so i don't want to say too much okay but uh but you know there's been there's been there's been emails there's been discussions oh, this is fantastic <laughs> news <laughs> it's funny i actually uh pitched there was a uh, canadian netflix wanted um uh canadian stories uh and i pitched something that was very similar to uh dinosauria Yes, David James Armby. David James Armsby. Yes, and, that's right. Uh, yes, and then and then Dinosauria came out, and I was like, "Oh, this is pretty much like that." My idea that I pitched and oh. it was quickly rejected. So uh, I'm glad somebody did it, and I know he did it all on his own. But like, it was just like I thought that was really brilliant. Yes. Oh yes, I think everybody is is in love with the whole series, and quite rightly. Yes. Yes, it's such an achievement. Yes. No, but this is wonderful news, Rebecca. I think, no, well, I, I suppose it's, it's just a matter of watching this space. And, uh, well, we <laughs> eagerly awaiting uh, further developments yes. on that point. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. You know, I don't want to make any promises I can't but, keep. Let, let's try not to jinx it yeah. for now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Rebecca, lastly, um, yes. other than what you cannot tell us too much about just yet, uh, is there anything else paleo related that you're working on at the moment i ask this understanding of course that you have but lately spent another month delivering a daily masterpiece back in november so it would be perfectly reasonable that you should want to take a break from it for a while but um but that aside is there anything else oh i think i'm just uh working on one of the things i i i love one of the reasons i love doing paleo art is is because it's it's not really for anyone if that makes any sense it that does a, yes um i yes so i just liked to it's it's what i like to do for fun it has lower stakes and uh i just sort of create as i feel inspired by something and mm. the inspiration can come from an animal it can come from a fact about an animal or a plant or it can come from a piece of art or it can even come from just oh i like the lighting outside right now i want to do something along those lines uh you know to you know as much as i know twitter is a hot mess right now <laughs> i get a lot of inspiration from twitter no, I, <laughs> I get a lot of you know like i follow a lot of paleontologists that you know tweet about a certain thing yes, and then of course. Uh, I'm like oh that's so cool yeah i, I so, do understand that uh i am in talks for possible for a possible book oh uh, ooh, yes my, please. my husband also my husband also publishes a book with a publisher in uh the uk so oh excellent so I, I'm also also compiling uh and working on that in the interim too oh fantastic so, so that. So watch the space again. Again, oh, for, that's, for that. that's I'm hoping maybe yeah. With the completion of the last I November, that gives me more uh, more work for that, and so I'm hoping maybe either later this year or early next year. Oh, wonderful! That. That's another good piece of news. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and I, and I suppose um, just to just come back a little to what you said earlier about um, it, it being lower stakes because you're doing these dinosaurs just for, uh, for your own pleasure, more or less. Um, I suppose that means that um, there is also less pressure 
unless um, I, I know that, that there is pressure in terms of your trying to produce an um, at least for for draw die November uh, produce an artwork each day and there are time constraints and all the rest of it mm -hmm. um, but these things aside does, does it mean that then there is less um, less creative pressure less worry about whether you're going to you know to to make someone cross or, or all the rest <laughs> of it I don't really worry about making people angry because that's going to happen no matter what you do yes but um i think for me it's just because in in my day job i i have clients that you know you have to please yes. whether it be disney or netflix or um any of those larger media corporations so i think with my personal work it's just uh, there's just more freedom that i can do whatever i want and And in a, in a way that can sometimes be um, a bit intimidating because it's like, oh, I can do whatever I want. Yes. <laughs> But it's very freeing. And I think it's really, really important. And I always encourage young artists that work in either animation or illustration to have an artistic identity outside of their their day job, outside mm, of, of their, their work. Yes. Um, otherwise, just artistically, you just, you just start to feel... Uh, you know, depressed. Yes. Um, and yeah, and you just, you just, because art is so important to me as a form of communication. Uh, I'm not the most articulate, as I'm sure as you can tell. So, uh, not so, at, no, no, quite uh, far from it. <laughs> so I, it's, it's a way for me to just communicate with, with, with people. Yes. On that score, I do understand. It's, it's just through the art, and that's so important. Yes, of course. Yeah. On that note, then, Rebecca, um, well, we, we look forward to everything else um, you have coming up for us, uh, and not just the, the uh, possible book or the possible series, but uh, everything else that you have to offer in the, in the meanwhile, because, uh, yeah, I and a whole host of others are huge fans of your work. Rebecca Dart. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again so much for your time. Oh, it's been amazing to talk to you, Matthew. Thank you. But Niels, um, are you afraid that, that our uh, having started uh, talking about dinosaur toys, that this is going to set a precedent, which <laughs> a dangerous one for the podcast, yeah. where we start to extend um, our uh, reach into the into the the collectible no. arena i would like to special? stress that this was a one time deal <laughs> <laughs> this is a special set they're not toys as you keep they telling me so um, this this is uh, this is a one time only deal the, the rest are toys we're not going to we're not going to create a situation where we end up with the papo t-rex come back next month we're talking about pnso <laughs> It's not well, even vintage. I We think they no. I think they fall and, exactly. And <laughs> but I think everything Schleich, else, which is the best you can get in this place, gosh. But I think everything else falls outside of the vintage, even vintage-ish remit. Um, how uh, yeah. even as severely as we've stretched it. So yeah, I think you're quite safe. <laughs> that this would be, this would be the only set of toys we'll be talking about on the podcast. So that about wraps up episode number twenty-three. Also, the first episode of two thousand and twenty-three. How serendipitous! Indeed, exactly. We're going to have so many discussions about rubbish, um, odd papers about they are rib not rubbish. Um, we're going to have how very dead. No, and we're going to have. More dinosaur toys with Niels likes it on that. <laughs> and we're going to need to find some more people to interview. So if you happen to know any amenable um, paleo artists or, or paleontologists, or you are one yourself, then, you know, <laughs> let us know. Careful, Mark. We'll... Yeah, sure, let us know. I mean, uh... yeah, yeah, let us know. We'll gladly give them an interview. As long as they're <laughs> I mean, there's no, a... Careful, they're going to storm us down. Are they? Yeah, right. <laughs> there's a few people I would like to have on the show. That was but, the joke. Uh... We'll oh. see. We'll see if they uh, if they bite. Have many more exciting interviews then with people. And also knows. more exciting vintage dinosaur art. Everything up to two thousand and three is now vintage dinosaur art. Oh, good God! Which includes some really awful post walking with dinosaurs CGI crap. 
So that'll be yep. fun. Suppose <laughs> <laughs> we, if anyone's made it to the end of this episode, we should thank them for their listenership. Yes, um, thank you very much. Thank you for putting up with us. Yes, thank you always. Thin, yeah. Through interesting interviews and not so interesting paper reviews and comments on dinosaur toys. If you don't care about dinosaur toys, firstly, you're wrong and you're probably Niels. But secondly, thank you for listening to this episode. You're probably wrong about the pronunciation uh, who, pterosaur who, as well. Who has the time and the space <laughs> and the money to collect dinosaurs? Well, it's we not don't. About having the space or the money, Niels. Neither, neither of us do. <laughs> it's not about but, that. but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the passion, Niels. It is a passion. <laughs> I mean, no offense, Nathie. Yours are all in boxes. What good is that? I know, but well, that's, you know. Yeah, that that would be the one. It's uh, like specimen drawers in a museum. Exactly. Off and you pull I mean, that would be the giant drawback in my. Yeah, it's it's it aggrieves me that I um I'm unable to display them. But um, but yeah, I uh, the collection didn't start because um because I thought I had room for them. So it was just uh, it's art, Niels. Collection. It's yeah, art. okay. It's, art, it's just just this once. It's it's dinosaur art. <laughs> come back in 20 years when we talk about Beast of the Mesozoic yep so <laughs> thanks for listening thank you so much everyone thank you for listening bye everybody bye thank you bye thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs your hosts were Nati Himapan Mark Vincent and me Niels Hasborg you can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com you can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon. We're not going to do that. It's children cheering. It's not sound effect anymore, are we? Uh, are we yes, not? We were. Yes, we are. I don't know. You can if you like. Oh, yeah. No, no, we oh, are. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, but it will, it will be overlaid onto our, our own hoorays. So it'll be just a nice chorus of hoorays. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I usually do. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's what Niels usually does. So I approve. Okay, we can, we can put that in here then. And go. Yay! Yay. There you go. <laughs>